If you're joining us this morning for the uh, first time, we're in the middle of a series that we're doing this summer on the book of Ecclesiastes. And so for over the last few weeks, we have gone through the first four chapters. And this morning, we're, getting, we're going to be coming to chapter five of Ecclesiastes. So we'll read through chapter five, and then we'll, uh, then we'll go from there. Chapter five, starting in verse one. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear." If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched over by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity." When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take away nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for that is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So it is beneficial to look at a passage of Scripture based on the context with which it was written, based on the writing itself. From this, from understanding the context, we can better understand where the author is coming from. And so this morning, I want to take a few moments and just sort of do a microbiography, we would call, for, of Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, to help give us this framework of, of where he is coming from. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. You see, the principal author of three books of the Bible is Solomon. 
He wrote Song of Solomon when he was a young man, when he was full of promise. He was, I don't mean that he was an adolescent. He's in his 20s by this time, and he's the king. But he's full of promise. And he wrote that when you have the woman that you love, you have everything. He wrote Proverbs when he was in his prime, when all the earth came to hear of the wisdom of Solomon and left saying that the half had not been told them. He wrote Ecclesiastes in his old age. His life was winding down and he looks back on life and he looks back on his own life and life in general and he's got a sour taste. He's got a sour taste for what life was. Or in the words of Eric Lawyer from chapter one, he said that he has a fragmented and cynical view of life. Solomon is disillusioned, disappointed with a thousand wives and 10,000 admirers, but very much alone. He saw life as an endless series of disappointments where nothing ever really lives up to its billet. Solomon writes that accomplishment is fleeting, that the praise of men is a bad joke, and that physical fitness is just a lot of hard work to, to uh, delay the inevitable. That a good time is the best thing possible because it takes your mind off of the problems, well, at least for a little while. So I'm not surprised that Ecclesiastes is so well received today. Solomon was a very modern man who just happened to live a long time ago. And he thinks and acts not unlike a lot of people today. Solomon was the son of David. David was the king of Israel at the time. When, when David became king, there was turmoil within Israel. There was a civil war going on and everyone around the country didn't know what to do. There was confusion. And then David became king. But David didn't want that to happen when his son Solomon came to be king. And so he established Solomon on the throne while he was still alive. And he, he, has, he has a wonderful dedication for Solomon and an anointing ceremony that takes place at the end of 1 Chronicles. David David gets all the people together. He gathers them all and he, he has them with his son right there. And he tells the people about the desires of his heart to build a temple for the Lord. He, he goes through and talks about how the Lord told David that he would not be the one to build the temple, but that Solomon was going to build the temple. You can read about that specific event in 2 Samuel chapter 7 or 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So David continues his speech that day, and he points to Solomon, and he gives Solomon some instructions. He says in verse 9, as you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. But if you, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. David then proceeds to give Solomon the plans to build the temple. And after that, David gives Solomon the materials to build this temple. And then David turns and says to Solomon, Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. 
3,000 talents of gold of the gold of offer, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses. And as David draws the ceremony to its conclusion, he prays, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. After that, Solomon is anointed king. And he's anointed king and sits on the throne while his father David is still alive. And this creates a seamless transition in their lives. From the, and the focus as David passes from the scene shifts to King Solomon. When Second Chronicles opens, Solomon is visited by the Lord and asks what the Lord, and the, and the Lord asks Solomon, what should I give you? And Solomon, he asked for wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people of yours? And the Lord granted Solomon that request. In fact, growing up, that's probably one of the things I remember most about Solomon, that he was the wisest man that ever lived. So after that, Solomon sets out and he builds the temple that his father David had desired to, in his heart to build for the Lord. And then as you go through 2 Chronicles, you see in, in, in 2 Chronicles 2 through 5, you can read about the temple itself being built. In chapter 6 and 7, there's the dedication of the temple. And then we have the next phase of Solomon's life. He amasses fame and wealth and territories. He sets 250 officials, Israelites, to be officials over the people that Solomon ruled. When we studied chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, our brother Tim Bowditch mentioned that Solomon would receive 666 talents of gold each year. And if we were to convert that to today's dollars, based on the, the price of gold per ounce was the close business on Friday, that would be $986,692,320 a year. There was nothing that Solomon could not buy. And as you read through Chronicles, the Second Chronicles, you can look, read about some of those other things that, that Solomon bought. One of the things that he bought and built was a house for his new wife, which happens to be the daughters of Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh. And it wasn't just Pharaoh's daughter that Solomon loved, because I, I, be, I do believe he did love her. It's that we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, but King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For so it was, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to his God, as was the heart of his father David. Altogether, Solomon reigned for 40 years in probably the most prosperous time in the history of Israel. So that's a brief overview of the life of Solomon. I would encourage you to actually study his life on your own. 
But let's, let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 now and see how we can make the connection between Solomon's life and Ecclesiastes, especially Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Because remember, he's an old man writing this book, and he's looking back on what life had brought him. And we've got to be careful about the observations that he makes. We'll work through this chapter backwards, and we see that in verse 15 through 20, that Solomon reflects on the end of a life. In verse 15, he talks about how a person enters the life the same way that they leave it, naked and with nothing. And he calls that a grievous evil in verse 16. To Solomon, the days of life are few, and the things that he considered a gift of God are the things that you have. He sees things that occupy a person's heart as the things that you will remember when you look back on your life. What is it that you will remember when you look back on your life? What are the things that you are going to look back or the things that you want to look back and see? Are you going to remember the, the, the days of your life? Are you going to look back and remember the days of your life and see wealth? Is, is your... Perhaps you don't have money rolling in like Solomon, but perhaps it's your income or maybe it's your stock portfolio that you value. And when you get to the end of your life, you'll realize that the thing that captured my heart was wealth. Some churches today have made the amassing of wealth, the gaining of wealth, and it destroys their testimony. It destroys the testimony of the believers there that are, that are trying to reach the world. The amassing of wealth has scarred our friends in the Catholic Church, and it's disillusioned some. Some who have grown up in there, that, that body of believers, thinking that just giving a few dollars each week is really what it was all about. And I fear that the influence of wealth will have a detrimental effect on any body of believers because it can be a short road to scorn and ridicule and ultimately failure. Are you going to look back on your life and remember all the possessions that you had? You know, Solomon had many houses, and you may only have one, but maybe you look back on your life and you say, I've got this wonderful house, and I've got this stuff that just fills that house. Do you look at that car, and do you value that car as more important than people? Are you looking back at all of the things that you've acquired over the years of your life and think that... I did pretty well for myself. You know, Solomon, I said he was a modern man who just happened to live a long time ago. And a few years ago, there was a fad that went around. And you could see it on t-shirts and bumper stickers. And you still see it today. It said, he who has the most toys wins. That sounds a lot like Solomon. As if having more things will somehow make you more joyous. Make, make your life more fulfilling? Or are you going to look back on your life and are you going to remember the power that you had? You see, it's interesting to, to, to read the news articles and, and watch people in business as they climb a corporate ladder, constantly pushing and pulling, trying to gain more and more power over others. They think that lording what little power that they do have over others makes themselves better. You can see in the business news how it destroys and damages companies, how it causes the loss of jobs, 
of millions. And it's not just in the business world that we see this power as it destroys. We see power driving husbands and wives to belittle one another and putting each other down either behind closed doors or as a display in front of other people. And that is wrong. We see siblings vying for more and more control within a family because they think that that power is more important. And sadly, we see that power is lorded over people in churches. I've seen churches where there is a claim to have a plurality of leadership when ultimately there's just one person there that muscles his own agenda up to the top and he lords that power over others within that body of believers. When power in the church is misused, it results in people losing heart and walking away from a life of faith. Wealth and power and possession. That is what Solomon saw when he looked back on his life. He saw the riches, he saw his stuff, and he saw his kingdom from which he ruled. In verses 10 through 14, we find that Solomon has a bit more to say about riches and money. In fact, this seems to be a recurring theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as, as we continue through. And we talked about how much gold Solomon made each year. Notice that when it, when, when it was written about, Ezra says that it wasn't about 600 talents of gold. No, he was very precise. He says it was 666 talents of gold each year. And I think that Ezra was able to tell us exactly how many talents of gold it was because that was important to Solomon and that is what Solomon wanted everyone to know. By the end of his life, Solomon knows that riches will not satisfy. We saw in chapter 1 that the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Last week in chapter 4, we read that the eye is not satisfied with riches and here in chapter 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This idea of not being satisfied is something that we still have with us today. In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, uh, Eric pointed out the song, Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. There's another sentiment that's echoed in song. The Rolling Stones released a hit in 1965 I can't get no satisfaction because I tried and I try and I try. Solomon, he tried and he tried and he tried and he couldn't get no satisfaction. And it wasn't just riches that Solomon sought satisfaction from. He tried to find satisfaction in women. Solomon is the principal author of the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom and there's a famous chapter at the end of the book of Solomon, Proverbs 31. There are books about Proverbs 31. And probably the most alarming part about that chapter, at least to me, is that Solomon didn't write that chapter. It was King Lemuel who took the words that he was taught by his mother and wrote and gave those words to the Lord. In chapter 7, Solomon says that he can find one good man in a thousand, but he's not found a good woman. He was never satisfied with riches, and he was never satisfied with women. Yeah, Ecclesiastes is an old book. But why is there huge credit card debt in America? 
Why is pornography a multi-billion dollar industry? Because the eye is not satisfied with seeing. Why in all, with all of our modern labor-saving devices is the pace of life just getting faster and faster and faster? And we see that with every generation because it's all grasping for the wind and chasing what can never be caught. If you are here this morning and you feel like if you feel like the Rolling Stones or you feel like Solomon and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you can't get no satisfaction, then you haven't tried Jesus Christ yet. Psalm 36 says, and we read this morning, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Notice when the satisfaction comes. It comes after you put your trust in the Lord and his loving kindness. And it's not just that you will be satisfied. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be abundantly satisfied. If you are looking for a satisfaction, then stop toying around with all that the world has to offer and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, where you will be abundantly satisfied. So here is a man who has everything. He has everything. And there is nothing that he can't complain about. He complains about rich. He complains, he complains about the rich. He complains about the poor. He complains about his neighbors. He's the king. He complains about his neighbors. He complains bitterly about women. He complains about children. You know, we had a, a, a dedication this morning, a beautiful thing. Solomon, he complained that his children didn't appreciate all that he's done. He complains about working too hard. He complains that things aren't what they used to be in the good old days. He complains about people who complain too much. <laughs> Solomon complains about everything. And you know people like that. You know people like that. They consistently and constantly complain about everything in life and even the blessings in their life they complain about and you just want to smack them and say look what you've got but they don't realize that the role that they play in that dissatisfaction in verse 8 and 9 Solomon complains about bureaucracy he talks about social injustice he says high official is watched over by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them now come on you're the king and you're complaining about the bureaucracy, you set it all up. We read that he put 250 officials and he created the organizational structure of the kingdom. Why is he the one complaining about it? And then finally, in verses seven, the first seven verses, these are the verses I find the most interesting in this passage because it gives us a true sense of where Solomon stands with God. You know, God is mentioned a number of times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so people will take that. And to be honest, chapter 5, you will find God mentioned more times in chapter 5 than in any other chapter within this book. But people will, will take that as a confirmation that this book 
is something that should be followed, that's something that should be taken as true. But in studying verse 2, I think we see the true heart of Solomon. It says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let me ask you a question. When you look at these words, how do you think Solomon views God? How does he view him? Distant. Distant. Unapproachable. Don't talk to him. He's up there. You're down here. How many people have that type of mentality today? In 2005, there was a Gallup poll that was, uh, it was nationally administered by the Gallup organization. And they found that a quarter of the people that were interviewed, they found God as distant. And that's how they described him. A quarter of the people. But that wasn't the most interesting part that I found about that survey. Because of that group, what I really found interesting was that those with college degrees and with incomes of greater than $100,000 a year were disproportionately believing in a distant God or were atheists. And not surprisingly, that's the same category that we find Solomon. Solomon falls into that same group of people, viewing God as distant and unapproachable. But what we have here is an example of how all the Bible was inspired by God. But not all the Bible is true. Let me say that again. All of the Bible is inspired by God, but not all of the Bible is true. You see, there are verses in the Bible that describe the Lord Jesus as a deceiver of the people, as a bastard child, as a glutton and a drunkard, and that's not true. Satan said in Job that a godly man will give all that he has for his life. Not true. And last week, Pete LaRosa pointed out that Solomon was wrong when he said the oppressed have no comforter because we have been given the Holy Spirit who is our comforter. When Solomon says that you can never be satisfied and God says you can be abundantly satisfied, well, one of them is badly mistaken. Solomon says, what will be, what will, what will be, will be. Que sera, sera, right? Jesus said, not so. Everything in life will have a consequence and a meaning. And not a cup of cold water given in my name will lose its reward. Solomon said that money is the answer for everything. Jesus Christ said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Solomon says that God is distant and that you should limit what you say to him. But we are told that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and that we can pray and should pray without ceasing. And to say with Solomon that there is nothing new is to, it's just to ignore. Worse, it's to refuse to believe and to see what God has done in Jesus Christ. Je Jeremiah wrote that God's mercies are new every morning. 
Jesus Christ preached a new doctrine, said the multitudes. When we take the bread and the cup, we quote the words of Jesus and where he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He promised to drink that cup anew with us in his father's kingdom. Meanwhile, if you are born again, you are given a new commandment you are, that you are new creation in Jesus Christ, that you put on the new man, that you come into God by a new and living way. You're given a new heart and a new spirit. You are called by a new name. The psalmist says that we have a new song in our heart, in our mouth, and you look forward to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And at the end of the book of Revelation, God says, behold, I make all things new. Now, if Solomon says there is nothing new and God says, I will make all things new, well, one of them has to be right. So as we study this book, two questions come to mind. Two questions. First, why would God have something like this in the Bible? Second, how is it that someone so wise could get it so wrong? So, let's start with the first one. Why is this book so full of skepticism and cynicism in the Bible to begin with? And I think it's more obvious than, than we may have realized. I mean, the words themselves, they contradict what God and Jesus teach. So why would God want something like it, this in his Bible? Is it to confuse people? Is it to cause us to wonder and create more questions within us than we already have? Many people today just... They have just as many questions as Solomon did. And they have the same thoughts that Solomon had. But there are many people who are a testimony to the fact that God can use a book like Ecclesiastes to reach people and to lead them to Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This book can and is used to reach people who don't know God and who don't know Jesus. So how did Solomon get it so wrong? A wise man such as himself. I'm, I'm prone to look at examples. And when I look at examples, I like to know what's good and what's bad. And we have a bad example in Solomon. So what's a good example? If we look at Solomon's life, we see he started out well. He started out well. He had David as his father. Who wouldn't want to have a David as his father? David was a man after God's own heart. We'll use David as our good example. And Solomon was given instructions by David. Remember, during those instructions, David 
used a very specific word, and I think it differentiates these two men. That word is heart. David told Solomon to know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. The thing which David set his affection, which set the affection of David's own heart was on the temple for the Lord. He wanted to build that temple. And he was told no. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been in that situation where you really wanted to do something and you, you felt like it was that perfect ministry and you were told no? Have you ever been discouraged because you were told no when you attempted something and you didn't get the reaction that you were hoping for? Do you, were you just let down? Were you angry at the reaction of people's ideas or of, of your idea to others? In First Chronicles 17, you can read about David wanting to build that temple. And he, he had this great idea. He says, I'm going to build a temple for the Lord. I'm going to build it right here. He acquired the land and he was going to build a temple. And he went to the prophet Nathan. He told Nathan, I'm going to build a temple for the Lord. Nathan said, that's a great idea. Go and do everything that's in your heart. That night, the Lord went and visited Nathan. And Nathan was told by the Lord, David will not build that temple. So Nathan has to go back to David and tell him, David, you can't build that temple. You will not build that temple. That exchange between Nathan and David when he determined that he was not going to build that temple took place about 30 years before the events in 1 Chronicles 28 29. Think about that. 30 years of knowing that he was not going to be able to do that which was the desire of his heart. 30 years. Think back to 30 years in your own life. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking, I wasn't even around 30 years ago. But think back 30 years and think about how long that is and how long you have to live with being told no to something that was a desire of your heart and what kind of response did you have? Do you still hold regret and remorse and anger towards those who told you no? Search your heart. Think about it. But what I really love, notice that David did not waver from the affection of his heart. He knew that he couldn't build the temple. He knew that he couldn't build, but that did not stop him from doing everything that he could to prepare for it. Over the next 30 years, David would draw up the plans for the temple that was to be built. Over the next 30 years, David was going to prepare the materials that were going to be used to build that temple. Read 1 Chronicles chapter 22. He talks about all the materials that he was going to prepare. And as he prepares, he prepares the gates for the temple. And then David says, I'm going to prepare the hinges for the gates for the temple. And then he goes on and it says he prepares the nails for the hinges for the gates of the temple and you have just got to love it. You have, the king of Israel is focused on the nails that will go into the gates for the temple. And I love verse 3 of 1 Chronicles 29 because it says, 
I have set my affection on the house of my God. And I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. You have just got to love his heart. He not only gives from his own special treasure, but it says he gives over and above. And I tell you, one thing I enjoy watching is I enjoy watching Christians who give and have set their affection on the service for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they too give over and above. And they give up of their own time and resources from their own special treasure. There are those who have set their affection, the heart, uh, their affection of their heart on children's ministries. And what do they do? They give over and above what is required of them in that ministry. There are those who have set the affection of their heart on serving those who are in their time of life that nobody else likes to deal with. And you know what they do? They give of their own special treasure to minister to those people that nobody likes to minister to or people are hesitant to minister to. And then I see some for whom the affection of their heart is to pray with uncompromising fervor for the body of Christ. And their prayers do not cease and their prayers do not waver while they are before the throne of grace. And praise the Lord for them. And what do we see said about Solomon's heart and at the end of Solomon's life? We read in 1 Kings 11, for so it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Here was the wealthiest man in the world, the most famous and the most powerful man in all the world. And how can you have all that and write something like this. Jesus told a parable about those who received the word of God with joy. But, he said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Solomon was once a man who received the word of God with joy and he started out well with joy and devotion. But the cares... And the riches of this world choked what he had, what he had received. And finally, even Solomon became utter, utterly unprofitable. At the end of Solomon's life, he remembered all the joy that he had. And his heart, he remembered all of that. And it was vanity. It was nothing. But at the end of David's life, he remembered all the joy that he had in his heart and it was joy that he had for the Lord and he was abundantly satisfied with his life. Solomon sought riches and honor, but when you read Ecclesiastes, you see that he never really receives any of it. David, David said that both riches and honor come from God. And when David died, his epitaph, it says that he died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor. So whose heart was found to be worthy of riches and honor from the Lord? And I'm not talking about earthly riches. And I'm not talking about honor that we see here on earth. 
If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you're still looking for that fulfillment in life, it begins with your mouth and it begins in your heart. For if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you have questions here this morning, and you are not sure about how God can show you grace, the grace that he so freely gives, come talk to me this morning. Come talk to one of the other individuals that you saw up here on stage. For there is nothing, absolutely nothing, under the sun, above the sun, or anywhere else that compares, comes even remotely close to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang this morning, come and rule my heart. Make a dwelling place. Through your grace, restore me anew. Place in me a restless heart till I wholly rest on you. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Of my wicked heart, Lord, I do repent. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I come. Praises to the Holy One. O oh, my mouth, I will tell of your righteous acts. Of your saving death, I will say, Oh, what undeserved grace for my sin the Lord did pay. So as we conclude, I pray that the, the affections of our hearts would not be on the things under the sun, but that the affections of our heart would be fixed towards the Lord Jesus Christ and that we may honor him all the days of our lives and that we would walk with him daily and rejoice in the goodness of the grace of God. Let's pray and then Tim. I'll hand it over to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the joy that we have in him and knowing that we can be abundantly satisfied because you are satisfied with your Son and his finished work on the cross. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and that we would just cherish the time that we have to worship you. Lord, it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.